0: My name is Buddy Owens. Everybody say hi, Buddy. Hi. hi. It's good to be with you. Uh, I was here about four years ago. I'm sure you all remember, but it's great to be back again. And we are continuing in the series that you've been in in the book of James. I'm going to talk to you about prayer today. So if you want to take out your message notes and a pen or a pencil or a crayon or something, mascara, whatever it takes to write, because um, I've got a lot of things for you to write down today. I hope you'll do that. We always say at my church that the shortest pencil is longer than the longest memory. So, um, trying to be helpful and give you some things to write down here. But I want to begin by looking at a passage from James chapter five. It's in your notes. It's also on the screen. But let me read it to you. James says, "Is any of you in trouble? He should pray." And isn't that the truth? We always pray when we're in trouble, don't we? "Says so, any of you in trouble? He should pray." "Is any hap- anyone happy? He should sing songs of praise." Is any of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he'll be forgiven. And therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. The prayer of a righteous person, the righteous man, a righteous woman, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Everybody prays. Everybody in the world prays. Even atheists pray. If you don't believe it, smack one on the toe with a hammer. He'll pray. He'll say something about God. It will be a prayer. It may not be biblical, but everybody prays. What's important is to know, how are we supposed to pray? When you hear of you know, a, someone's bringing a sermon on prayer, you might be thinking, well, you know, what's, so, what's a big deal about prayer? It's kind of a no-brainer. All Christians pray. And sadly, and not to be disrespectful of anybody, but a lot of times prayer is a no-brainer because we don't use our brains when we're praying. We pray sort of mindlessly. We're not thinking about what we're doing. So I want to talk about how do we pray with our mind, not just to pray in the spirit, but how do we use our brains in prayer? How do we organize our prayer life? Because one of the uh, complaints that I hear from a lot, of, a lot of folks at my church is the dissatisfaction they have with their own prayer life. Many times they don't know where to start. They don't know how to begin. They don't know how to organize their thoughts. They feel overwhelmed Either with the, with the idea that there's so much to pray about or underwhelmed because they just never think to pray about anything and they feel guilty because they don't have a good prayer life. And then the question often comes up well, why should I pray anyway? I mean, if God already knows the end of all things, then what difference does it make? Why should I pray? God's the sovereign, He's the king, He's in charge, so why should I pray? And one of the reasons is because as the sovereign, as our king, he commands us to pray. So we pray in obedience. There's something of the power of God, as we're about to see, that is released in our direction when we come to him in prayer. There's a partnership that we play with God in partnering with him to accomplish his will and his purposes on earth. And a great deal of that is dependent upon our prayers We are, whether we want to be or not, we are all in a great cosmic battle. A spiritual war. The Bible talks a lot about it. I'm going to look at one of those passages. It's in Ephesians 6. Look at what Paul says about this. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, not if, when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now let me just stop right there before I go on. Paul is telling us we're in a battle, and it's not against people. It's a heavenly battle. It is a spiritual battle. And he's just told us that God has given us spiritual armor and spiritual weapons to fight a spiritual war. And so he gives us this metaphor of a helmet of salvation and a breastplate of righteousness and a sword of the spirit, which is the word. If you look at the list of things we read, all of those things are part of the armor. There's only one weapon in all of it. The weapon is a sword. The rest of it is armor. A helmet, a breastplate, a shield, the shoes, all of that. The belt, that's part of the armor. But it's easy for us to get um, distracted by that metaphor. And you'll hear people pray and say, Lord, I'm putting on the helmet of salvation and I'm putting on the breastplate of righteousness. That's not what Paul's talking about. It's not an activity. It's a metaphor for a way of life. He's saying, I want you to live your life in such a way that the outflow of your life is through a lens of truth, that everything is done filtered by truth. That's what it means to have your gut filtered, aligned, belted with truth. He says, righteousness, doing things God's way is such a part of your life that it guards your heart itself. That the helmet of salvation, he's saying that you think in such a way, you think as a saved person. That's what he means by the helmet of salvation. It's not just something you take off and put back on. He's talking about how we live our lives. The sword of the word is not just having a Bible sitting on a shelf. It's not just carrying it around with you in a leather case. It's are you carrying it in your heart and in your mind that you know how to use the Word of God effectively. That's what he's talking about. So he's telling us God has given us armor and weapons for a spiritual war. Then he tells us, now here's the strategy for that war. Now that you've, armed your, you've been armed by God and given these things, now here's a strategy. He says, pray. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind... Be alert and always keep on praying. You might want to circle those words in your notes. I underlined them, but circled them anyway. Circle them. Be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. The point he's making is that you are in a battle, whether you want to be or not. There's nothing you can do about it. You're in it. But there is a huge difference between being in a war and being at war. We're all in the war. But let me describe or explain the difference between being in a war and being at war. A refugee is in a war. He's trying to escape it. He's trying to get away from the trouble. A refugee is in a war. A soldier is not only in a war, he's at war. He's fighting that war. He's in the war to win the war. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, am I just a refugee in a war and I'm trying to escape my responsibilities? Or am I a soldier in that war and I'm in it to win it? And the method for winning that war is a spiritual method. And the method for winning, the strategy for winning that war is a strategy of prayer. Now let me give you a a word picture of this. In 1983 the United States Navy launched the first ship that was equipped with something called the Aegis Defense System. They actually build the ship around the system. They don't just put the system in the ship. The ship is built around the Aegis Defense System. The Aegis System is a radar tracking system, the most powerful radar tracking system that we know of. And it is capable of tracking and targeting over 100 targets on land, sea, air, and under the sea within a 115 mile radius. So 115 miles in every direction of that ship. It can track 100 different targets simultaneously. And it can launch attacks against all 100 of those targets simultaneously. Pretty amazing. And at the same time, it can set up a defense system to protect the fleet that it's a part of, protecting it from attack from sea, air, land, and from underwater. That's the Aegis defense system. Now I think it's interesting that they chose the word Aegis as the name of that defense system because of the meaning of that word. And I want you to write this down because we're gonna think about these words. The meaning of Aegis, here's what it is. Here's the, the definition kind of long. There's a bunch of words that go on that line, so write this down. Aegis means the realm or reach of authority. Write that down. Authority, influence, protection, responsibility, and advocacy. It's the realm or reach of authority, influence, protection, responsibility, and advocacy. Where do you have authority in your life? Where do you have influence in your life? You may say, well I don't have any influence. Sure you do. you have any friends? you have any family? Are you in business? Are you a student? You have influence over people. You can influence somebody just by saying hi to them. You could make their whole day just by smiling at them. We all have influence. There's authority, there's responsibility advocacy, you're standing up for somebody, watching out for them. So this applies to all of our lives. So here's a question to write down. Here's the question to think about now. What is the aegis of my prayer life? What's the aegis of my prayer life? What's on the horizon? What am I tracking? What am I looking out for? What is God holding me responsible for? What's the territory that God has given me in my life that he wants me to? to cover in prayer. Let me give you some ideas of what the realm or reach of your authority and influence could be. You can write these down. One part of the aegis of your life is your family. It's your kids if you have them. It's your spouse if you have a spouse. Your parents, your siblings. There's family involved. You have influence for them. You have responsibility for them. Are you praying for them? Another part of the aegis of your life would be your friendships, the people you hang out with, the people you know and love and care about. See, God didn't just give you friends to have fun. He also gave you friends because he wants you praying for each other, covering each other, watching out for each other, holding each other up in prayer. Another part of the aegis of your life would be your church. Praying for this congregation, for Rockbrook Church and the influence that Rockbrook has in the community around you. Are you praying for the church? Are you praying for Kelly? Praying for Kelly to get his voice back so you don't have to have a bald guy from California standing on the stage. Are you praying for your pastor? Are you praying for whatever ministry you might be involved in here at the church? Another part of the aegis of your life would be the community. The community. Whatever town you might live in. Or the greater Kansas City area. What's going on in Kansas City right now? Is there something that's breaking the heart of the people? Is there something that's breaking God's heart in this area? Your community also extends all the way to the whole nation. Praying for our national leaders. And I say this, it applies as much to me as anybody else in the room. If I were to spend as much time praying for our leaders as I do criticizing them, we'd probably all be in a lot better shape. Are we praying for our leaders? The Bible tells us we're supposed to do that, be praying for our leaders. Another part of the aegis of your life is the, your work or school, whatever business you happen to be in. Are you praying for God to bless your business? Are you praying for your, for your uh, uh, customers? Are you praying for the knucklehead that works in the, you know, in the desk next to you? In school, are you praying for your friends in school? How about the teachers? Our teachers need prayer. The ones we like and the ones we don't like. They all need to be prayed for. The teachers of our, of our kids, we need to be praying for them. Another part of the aegis of your life to be prayed for would be projects or events. The things that you're involved with. The things that you can see that are coming down the road at you. The things out on the horizon. The ideas. Asking for God's Blessing, asking for his wisdom, asking for his direction in the things that you're going to do. We need to be keeping our eyes open for what's happening around us, paying attention. That's why Jesus says in, Mark, in Matthew 26, he says, Watch and pray. Watch and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. And Paul says in Ephesians 6, where it just read, he says, Be alert. And always keep on praying for people. It's not enough just to pray. We have to also watch. We have to be alert. We are supposed to be watchful and prayerful. Keeping an eye out for what is going on around us. Because if we don't pray about these things, if you think of it this way, that prayer is sending a message to God, not praying is also sending a message to God. The message you send to God when you don't pray is, hey, I don't need you in this one. I got it covered. Have a seat. Don't worry about me, Lord. You can deal with somebody else. I've got this all figured out. I got it systematized. I've done it a million times. I don't need your help. That's what you're saying when you don't pray. And when you say that, God goes, okay, great. Show me what you got. How's that working out for you? We need to be praying about these things. Because God has put them in our lives for that purpose. At the uh, uh, Dream Team meeting we had on Thursday night, I read a passage from Ephesians 3, a verse that many of us are familiar with that says that God is able to do abundantly above, exceeding abundantly above and beyond all that we could ask or imagine. Think about this now. He can do exceedingly beyond all you could ask or imagine. So that means we need to ask. How can God exceed our expectations if we don't ever ask? We need to be praying people. To not pray, pray, here's the risk that we face. To not pray and invite God to do more than we could ask or imagine, the most we'll get out of it, if we just do it on our own, is the sum total of our own abilities. Whatever our talents and abilities are, Whatever they're capable of, that's all we're going to get. We can sow the seeds, but only God gives the increase. We can fill the jars with water and be all proud of ourselves at how many jars we were able to fill with water, but only Jesus can turn that water into wine. If you want God to exceed your expectations, if you want Him to do more than you could ask or imagine, well, then you've got to ask. He's inviting us to do that. So I want you to write this down in your notes. Prayer, prayer invites the miraculous. Prayer is what invites the miraculous. Prayer is what makes room for God's hand. It's what opens the door for his involvement. We can never take God's favor for granted. Yes, it is ours in Christ, but it's not to be taken lightly. It's not to be forgotten. And if we attempt to sail into enemy territory without having the Aegis system in place and turned on, we face the possibility of failure. We face, we're putting ourselves at risk of attack, and we won't even see it coming. We won't even know what hit us if we're not paying attention. There's a picture of this, In the Old Testament, in Samson's life, you remember Samson, the hippie, right? The guy with the long hair and all the strength? The secret to Samson's strength was not in his hair. That was just a symbol of something. The secret to Samson's strength was his obedience and his relying on God. And God had said, look, I'm giving you a sign of this, and it's in your hair. Don't cut that hair off. That's the symbol that you're doing things the way I told you to. And, of course, we all know the story where Samson gives in. He thinks, I can handle this on my own. And he tells Delilah, his girlfriend, the secret to his strength, and she cuts off his hair. Now, he didn't lose his strength because the hair was gone. He lost his strength because he ceased to depend upon God. He ceased to obey God. And one of the most frightening verses of Scripture has to do with his story. It's here on the screen. I didn't put it in your notes. It's in Judges 16.20. After she's cut his hair, it says, Then Delilah called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he awoke from his sleep. Right there. i got to challenge us guys. There are a lot of guys in this place who need to awake from our sleep. We need to wake up to what's going on. It says, He awoke from his sleep and he thought... Oh, I'll just go out as before and shake myself free. In other words, I'm going to do things the way I've always done them. It's always worked before. I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. He wasn't even aware of it. When Samson stopped depending on God, he became presumptuous. I can handle this, God. I don't need to do things your way anymore. I don't need to look for your involvement in what I'm up against. God's blessing departed from him. And he didn't even know it had happened. He wasn't even aware of it. We risk the same thing. By not praying for the things, the aegis, by not covering things in prayer, we also risk failure. And the failure is not because of God's heavy-handedness. It's not God saying, I'll show you, I'm going to get you. It's not from God's heavy handedness. The failure is because of the absence of God's empowering and blessing hand. It's because we've walked out from under his covering. We've turned off the system. We're no longer looking for his protection and we're just trying to do it on our own. And when things fail and we say, God, why did you let this fail? He might just say, well, why didn't you ever ask me to help it succeed? We need to be praying. Every decision that we face in our business, the relationships that we have, the challenges that we face, to be praying for those things and looking for God's blessing. We have an obligation because God has told us that he wants us to be praying people. It's a sovereign obligation. If God has put you into a church, into a ministry you have an obligation to pray for that church and for that ministry, for this family of faith here. If God's put you in a family, you have an obligation to pray for your family. If he's given you friends, it's because he wants you praying for those people. If he's put you in business, whatever your work is, if you're in school, in a community, you have an obligation to be praying for those things. God wants us praying because that's how we partner with him. Because something happens in a spiritual realm when we join with God and partner with Him by praying for these things. The power of God is released on our behalf. There is so much at stake. Eternal life is at stake. Are we praying for lost friends? Life on earth is at stake. Are we praying for our community, for our culture? So much is at stake. Think just about your friendships. I see some of you sitting with friends. What could happen? Just think about this. What could happen if you were all praying for each other every day? What would your life be like if you knew that your friends were praying for you every day? Let me ask that question in a darker way. What could happen if you don't pray? You see how much is at stake? What would happen if we weren't praying people? What would happen if nobody ever prayed? What would would hold back the darkness? What would hold back evil if the church was not praying and seeking God and doing the war that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6 by being prayerful and praying people? So I come back to the question that I asked at the beginning of the message. What is the aegis of your prayer life? What has God placed in your responsibility, in your realm of influence and advocacy that he wants you to be praying about? Now, this can sound overwhelming. But I'm not talking about praying 24 hours a day. Because it might sound like, man, that's what I have to do. That's not what I'm talking about at all. There are actually simple ways to do this. Ways to organize it to make it something that's very, very doable. And I want to I give you some ideas of how to organize your prayer life. And the first thing you might do, you can just write this down someplace on that page, is schedule them. Schedule the prayer requests. Some things you'll pray about every day. Some things you pray about weekly. Some things you pray about monthly. But put them on your calendar. For example, I have a wife, four kids, and two grandchildren. I just had my first grandchildren in October. Identical twin girls. They're awesome. They live two miles from us. See them all the time. Anyway, uh, but I pray for them every day. <clears throat> but there are other things I pray for once a week. I had a conversation, in fact, just Thursday. One of the guys on our staff stopped me in the hallway. We were talking about something. And he said, you know, I pray for you every Thursday. Every Thursday. I thought, wow. I had no idea. I thought, well, isn't that incredible? This guy prays for me every Thursday. And then he said, in fact, I pray for all of our pastors every Thursday. So then I didn't feel special anymore. <laughs> but he puts it on his calendar. On Thursday, he just prays for us. You can calendar things. You can schedule things. There are some things that are seasonal in prayer. A decision you're facing. A crisis that's upon you. And so you pray for it daily for a season until you've gotten through that decision or that crisis or that need or challenge or whatever it was, and then just in sort of watchful prayer you manage as you go forward, but you don't have the same intensity every day for everything. But you can schedule things out, put them on your calendar. The other thing you can do is you can set up prayer memorials or prayer monuments little things that remind you to pray. Let me give you an example. My mentor is a pastor in Southern California, and I went to visit him in his house one day, and I started asking him about his prayer life. And he said, well, let me show you how I pray. So he took me outside out to the front yard. Now, he has a good-sized front yard for Southern California. It's not like you all have. We don't have acres where I live. We also do not have cicadas. (laughs) (coughs) But he has a good-sized yard. (coughs) And... uh, he said, "Yeah." He said, "I, I walk. I, I pray as I walk around the yard." He said, I'll, "I'll show you." So he goes, "See the two, the pine trees? There are two enormous pine trees in the yard next to the house." He said, "That's Ken and Lloyd." Ken and Lloyd are two of his lifelong friends in ministry. He said, "So I walk over those trees. I pray for Ken and Lloyd." And then underneath them was a bench. He said, "That's Dean and Lori. I pray for Dean and Lori. I sit on that bench and pray from there. They're his." he and his wife's best friends. I pray for Dean and Lori. And he pointed out several things in the yard that are reminders, memorials, monuments to pray. He said, then right here in the middle of the yard, there was a, a fountain, a bird fountain. He said, that's Anna, that's his wife. It's this fountain of life. He said, I come to the fountain, I pray for Anna. He said, and then that birch tree right over there, he said, that's you. That blew my mind. But he's praying for me. And he walks through the yard, he says, yeah, that's you. I pray for you. So I started doing something like that. So here's how I set up prayer monuments for myself. I have two son-in-laws. One is a sheriff's deputy in Orange County. The other is a firefighter. So whenever I see a police car or sheriff's car, I pray for my son-in-law, Micah, because I don't know what's going on in his life that day. I know he's at work. I know it's dangerous work but I don't know what's going on. I just pray for him. Whenever I see a fire truck, I pray for my son-in-law, Sean. I may not know what's happening at that moment. That doesn't matter. That's just my reminder. Pray for Sean. Sometimes it happens several times a day. And if I don't see the vehicle, but I hear a siren, I pray for both of them. I just do that as just, okay, there's a reminder. So I've, I've set them in place to remind me of things I need to pray for. When I drive to work in the morning, As I'm heading down my hill, I offer myself to God and I start that kind of prayer, just inviting the Lord to come and be Lord of my day, to come and fill me in a fresh way with his spirit and his presence. I turn the corner, I start heading up the block and there's a church about four blocks from me. And as I drive past that church, I just stick my right hand out like this because it's on the right hand side. And I say, Lord, as I'm driving by, I just say, Lord, would you send a fresh move of your Holy Spirit on St. Killian's? And I make the turn and I head up down the boulevard and I start praying for other things. They're just little reminders along the way of things to pray for. My drive to my office is 10 minutes. And by the end of the 10 minutes, I have prayed for my family and I have prayed for all of the pastoral staff of my church. They're not these long, involved prayers. Sometimes there are things going on and I'll pray for a while for one person but it's not like every single thing that comes to mind has to be prayed for for a half an hour. So let me just kind of let you off the hook on that. You don't have to feel like, oh man, i got this overwhelming obligation. No, you don't. It doesn't have to be that difficult. Another idea that I have is is what I call drop-in visitors. Here's what drop-in visitors are. They're drop-in visitors in your brain. You ever have out of the blue, at random, someone just pops into your mind, and you're going, why am I thinking of that guy? I haven't seen that guy in years they just come to your mind? It happens to me all the time. Yeah? Nod your head at me if it does. Yeah? Okay, the rest of you are nodding because you're asleep. Yeah. Well, I just take that as a cue to pray for them. I mean, it can't hurt anything, right? They came to my mind. I think, okay, they're in my mind. I'm going to pray. And I just start praying for them. And then I pull out my cell phone and I send them a text. And it's just four words. Praying for you today. They came to me randomly. They're going to get a random text out of me, okay? Praying for you today. And it's amazing how often I hear back from them. How did you know? And then they'll start telling me what's going on. I had no idea what was going on. I just started praying for them. Now, not everything and not everybody has to require the same amount of time and energy and focus when you're praying. But they do need to be prayed for. Look at this verse from 1 Samuel 12.23. It says, Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. Now look at that verse. Here's what's interesting to me. He does not say, you always got to look at what the Bible does not say. He does not say, far be it from me that I should sin against you by failing to pray for you. He says, if I fail to pray for you I'm sinning against the Lord. God's given me a responsibility. He's put you in my life for a reason. And he wants me to be praying for you. So every prayer, as I said, it doesn't have to be lengthy. It can be momentary. It can actually just be the mention of a person's name. The Apostle Paul prayed that way. There are three verses I want you to look at. In Ephesians 1.16, Paul says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. He doesn't say travailing for you. He says making mention of you. In 1 Thessalonians 1-2, he says, we always thank God for all of you mentioning you in our prayers. And in the book of Philemon, in the fourth verse, he says, I always thank my God when I mention you in my prayers. So they don't have to be long prayers. You're just bringing the name of somebody before God, bringing them to his attention. And as I said, if you know something that's going on, you pray as long as you feel that you need to, and then move on to something else. Now, let's look at the kind of prayer that is effective, because I would imagine that all of us want our prayers to be effective. Well, here's what the Bible says about that, and it takes us back to James chapter 5, where I started. In verse 16 of that chapter, it says, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. I often read scriptures backwards. What kind of prayer is powerful and effective? It's the prayer of a righteous person. I want my prayers to be powerful and effective. Therefore, I need to be a righteous person. Now, what does that mean? How can that be done? Well, again, let's all let ourselves off the hook. That word, righteous, is not talking about perfection. God isn't looking for perfection in you. The perfection's already been dealt with through Jesus Christ. What God is looking for is not perfection. He's looking for direction. Are you headed in the right direction? Look at the meaning of this word, righteous. I put it in your notes, and it's here on the screen. The Greek word is dikaios, but here's what it means. It means upright, upright, it means observing divine laws and living according to the Word. Living according to the Word. And it describes, whenever you see that Word, it describes a person whose thinking, feeling, and acting is conforming to the will of God. It's a person who is living their life according to the will of God, according to the Word of God. How is it possible to be that kind of person? Well, in order to live according to the will of God, as I said a moment ago, you have to live according to the word of God. This is why the Bible is important. This is why we have the sword of the Spirit. The word of God doesn't just tell us the things God said. It tells us how he thinks. In any conversation you have with a friend, the longer you converse with them, the more you get to know somebody, and you hear them, and you have conversation with them, Well, you pretty soon begin to understand how they think about things. You get to understand their way of thinking. The more you know the word of God, the more time you spend in conversation with the Lord, the more likely you are to understand how he thinks about what you're facing. So you say, I wonder what God's will is in this decision I'm facing. Well, what has he already said? What has God already said about business? What has he said about ethics, about generosity and stewardship? What has God already said about relationships, about forgiveness and kindness, about cutting each other slack? What has God already said about moral purity? So many of the decisions we face, and we want to know what's God's will, we can find his will by being people of his word. When we pray according to the word of God, we're praying according to the will of God. If I want to live according to the will of God, I need to live according to the word of God. Let me, let me give you a, a, a picture of that. I know somebody in this room can tell me what this is. What is this? Plum bob, plumb line, absolutely. It's an ancient tool. And it's a very simple tool. But it's pretty profound in what it does. Because it works off of the absolute unbreakable law of gravity. And builders use these, contractors, carpenters. And they hang this weight from a string. And when gravity does what it's supposed to do, by the time this thing stops moving, this line is perfectly vertical, perfectly straight. And the word that you will hear that carpenter use is plumb. And sometimes you'll hear him say, it's true. It's true. In fact, sometimes you'll hear a a guy, who's building a house, he's framing a wall, he'll say, you know, we need to true that up a little bit. Because he's comparing it to the standard of truth. Jesus said, we're all building. We're all building houses. What are you building on? What's the standard that you are building on? Because if the walls aren't straight, the house is going to fall down. The word of God is the plumb line for the soul. It's the standard of truth that God has given us that we can bring every thought, every imagination, every dream, every hope, every nightmare, every decision, everything that is said to us or about us, we can bring all of those things and, and see how do they align with the standard of truth. If they don't line up to the truth, then they're not true. They're the things we build our lives on. And that's why God has given us his word. So that we can be the righteous kind of people he's talking about. People of the word. People who live according to his word. And when we do that, he says it's the person who lives according to the word. That person's prayer is powerful and effective. That's what James is saying. That person's prayer is powerful and effective. Now what does it mean for my prayer to be powerful? The word powerful is the word energeo. It's where we get the word energy. And whenever you see the word in scripture, it means being energized by the power of God. It always refers to supernatural power. It's not talking about human energy and human power. It always refers to supernatural power. So when he's talking about the fervent prayer of a righteous man, as the King James says, he's not talking about stirring up human emotion. Although the power of God in you can stir up human emotion, but human emotion is no substitute for the power of God. If you want your prayer to be powered by God, well then it comes from a person who is living according to the word of God. When you live by the word of God, your prayer is infused with the power of God. That make sense? That's what the verse is saying. When you live according to the word of God, your prayer is infused with the power of God. And it is not only empowered by God, that's when it becomes effective. And that word effective, the Greek word is eskuo, and it means It is a force capable of extraordinary deeds. It's a force capable of extraordinary deeds. I want my prayer to be capable of extraordinary deeds, not just the ordinary. I want it to be capable of the extraordinary. And in order for that to happen, it has to be empowered by God. And in order for that to happen, God brings his power to the prayers of people who are praying according to his will, who are living according to his word. So I have paraphrased this verse, and it's the next group of fill-ins, and you can write them down. This is James 5.16. After I had, had soaked, marinated in this passage for a while, I paraphrased it this way. That's why it says it is uh, James 5.16b in the BGP translation. BGP means the bald guy's paraphrase. Okay, that's what that is. So you can write, fill in these blanks. It means the prayer energized by the power of God Prayer energized by the power of God, prayed by a man or woman of the word, is a great force capable of extraordinary deeds. That's what that verse means. It's capable of extraordinary deeds because it's empowered by God and God brings his power to it because it's prayed by a person who is living according to the word of God. The more you pay attention to God's words. Here's another way to summarize it. The more you pay attention to God's words, the more He pays attention to yours. The more, in fact, write this down. The more you honor God's word, the more He honors your prayers. The more you honor God's word, the more He honors your prayers. Now, let me be very clear here. I am not saying That by doing all the right things that you are somehow earning God's favor and blessing. God's favor and blessing are a gift of grace to us through Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that you're earning it. What I am saying is you are inviting the grace and the blessing of God upon your life. You're putting yourself in a position to be blessed. You're putting yourself in a position to receive The answer to prayer. It's like a receiver on a football team. I've gone downfield, I'm open, and I'm waiting for the pass. I've made myself ready and available to receive what the quarterback's going to throw to me. When we live according to the word of God, when we live according to his word, when we honor his word, God honors our prayers. Because the prayer Energized by the power of God, prayed by a man or woman of the word, is a great force capable of extraordinary deeds. Now, I want to close the message with a time of prayer. I want us to practice what I just preached. And I want to bring you back to the idea of the aegis of your prayer life. I mentioned several areas of your life <clears throat> that are in that aegis your family, your friends, your work, school, community, the church, projects. I want us to focus on people. Because as we close in prayer, I'm not going to pray for you. And you're not going to pray for yourself. I want to ask you, who comes to mind? Who do you know who needs prayer today? Somebody you know that's in trouble? Somebody have a heartache? Who do you know that needs prayer? Bring them to mind, because in a moment I'm going to have you pray for them. And then I'm going to have you do something else. Anybody here have a cell phone? Come on, I know you do. See, you forget, I can see what you're doing from up here, okay? Take out your cell phone. Go ahead, take it out. Power it up. Go to your contacts and find that person in your phone. Because in a minute we're going to pray for them. And then I'm going to have you send them a text. Okay? If you don't have your phone with you, when you get to the car, send them a text. When you get home, send them an email. If you don't have a computer, send them a letter. Letters still work. Okay? Write them a note. Make a phone call. But we need to pray for them. So who comes to mind? You got somebody? Someone needs prayer. Okay, let's bow our heads. Bow your heads. I want to invite the worship team to come out while we pray. Bow your heads. And just begin to pray for that person right now. Pray for them the way you want somebody to pray for you. Just pray for them for a minute. All right, now go to your phone. Find your friend on the phone and send him a text. It's just four words praying for you today. Just send them that message, praying for you today. And as you're sending those texts, I'd like the worship team to continue to lead us in worship.